So, it is the day after Christmas. So much buildup until Christmas. And then we hit Christmas Day. And then shh, all, the, all the papers ripped into and all the presents are looked at. And then you feel that feeling. You know what I mean? That feeling about five minutes after all the presents are open. And it's kind of like, whew, that was kind of anticlimactic, wasn't it? And you kind of get that, okay, now where do we do now? And you might feel like me occasionally when the wrapping paper's on the ground and the, the kids are bored with their toys two hours after they open them. The batteries you needed for all the toys are all the wrong size. All that stuff happens and you feel like, oh, here we go. But as Christians, there, there may be a tendency for us also after Christmas to have that kind of anticlimactic feeling. What do we do as believers after the celebration of Christmas is over? After the lights, after the candlelight services, after the warm songs, after the nativity sets are back in the box and we go back to living in non-Christmas mode with a non-Christmas mindset. What we're going to do this morning, what I hope to accomplish this morning, is we're going to look at the Christmas story, the rest of the Christmas story in, in Matthew. We're going to look at Jesus' family and the Magi during the first days, months, and years that immediately follow Jesus' birth. And we're going to discover what it means to be a worshiper during times of hardship and hostility. So if you have God's Word with you this morning, I would encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 2. It's also in your sermon notes that were in both of our lobbies this morning as you came in, and also it'll be on the screen. But if you have a copy of God's Word this morning, either on uh, digital form or paper form, please open to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23. I'm not going to read the whole text at once, but we will look at sections of those. Now, as you're opening to Matthew chapter 2, a little bit of context. Matthew, obviously, is a disciple of Jesus, and it's written, Matthew wrote his gospel to a Jewish, Jewish audience for the purpose of convincing them through the Old Testament Scripture that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Matthew was a former Roman tax collector who was converted by Christ at his workplace. Matthew abandoned a highly criticized but a highly lucrative career in order to follow Christ. Herod the Great was the ruler of Judea during this time and was part of the ruthless ruling family dynasty, the Herodians. So if you have a copy of God's Word this morning, the first point I want to make from our uh, sermon this morning is that believers are faithful when things appear to be working against them. And we're going to be uh, in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw, when it, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. 
For so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's look at the first two verses really quick. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. The main characters in this passage are the Magi from the East. Now, these were not Jewish believers. When, we, when you read the word Magi, these weren't Jewish believers. The term Magi applies to a range of people who practiced astrology, they practiced dream interpretations and magic or tried to practice magic. The, magics, uh, the Magi studied various religious, religious writing and wisdom writing, as well as studying sacred writings from across the globe, including the Jewish scriptures. So even though the Magi were not Jews, they believed that the strange appearance in the sky, the strange light in the sky, signaled that the divine work the divine was at work and began to seek the Jewish Messiah. More than likely, the Magi knew this from the earlier writings that they've studied from the Jewish scriptures, namely the prophecy of Christ from Numbers 24, 17 that says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now remember, this was before cars. This was before railroads. This was before planes. The journey would have likely taken, when they saw the star and made an effort to go, this journey likely would have taken the Magi months, weeks, or maybe even months, given the terrain, to get from where they were in the east all the way to where King Herod was. We usually think of the Magi showing up the same night as the shepherds. You know, we see Christian art and the shepherds are there and the Magi are there and everybody's kind of just come together at the same time to see the Christ child. But the Magi saw the star and traveled. They had to take severe travels and severe pains to get to where uh, the Christ child was to get to Jerusalem. They had to go about seeking the Christ child after that, because remember, Herod set them on a task to find it, which it would have taken them more time. The Magi knew if God truly sent his son, it would have been evidence 
of the one true God that they've read about in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, after Herod had a council meeting that we see in verses 3 through 7 about where the Messiah was going to be born, he invites these traveling magi into the king's court and gives them a command to report back when they have found the one who has been born king of the Jews. And here's the interesting thing. The magi surely knew obviously knew of the rage of Herod and the entire Herodian family. This was common knowledge in the Roman Empire at this time, and especially in Jerusalem. They knew of the rage of Herod, and we've talked about that a little bit together from this pulpit. The Herods had a reputation, had a reputation for rage and being very insecure about any challenge to their power. Yet, when the Magi show up at the house of Christ months after his birth, you don't see the Magi shrinking back. You don't see them going, man, I don't want to go in there because if, you know, if Herod sees us worshiping him, we're going to lose everything from the shoulders up. We don't see any type of fear of Herod from these Magi at all. It's as if they were converted when they saw this Christ child. It says they saw him, they just didn't see him and said, here's your presence. What did it say about the Magi and what they did? It said they saw him and then did what? They worshipped him. It's as if when they saw him, it was very clear, the Holy Spirit laid it very clear on the Magi's hearts that all these other things that they have studied, all this other wisdom tradition that they've studied, was nothing in compared to the truth of what we are now witnessing here in the presence of this Christ child. Again, the Magi in verse 10 fall on their faces in worship in spite of the king's potential rage or the potential consequences of honoring anyone but the empire or Caesar or Herod. Not only do they worship Jesus, but they treat Christ like the king he is by bringing him tribute like any other foreign official would bring when they would be in the presence of the king. In verse 11, the Magi bring gold to fit Jesus' royalty. They bring frankincense as a gift fitting for a priest. And they bring myrrh as a gift given to a martyred prophet. They may not have been believers when they left, originally left for their journey, but trust me, they certainly were on their way back. They worshiped him and they fell on their faces and gave him honor. The section of scripture ends with God giving the Magi the grace of a dream to not return back to Herod, but to go back to their own country by a what? Remember? A different way. Now, when you take a trip, dads are like this. If you're, you're going to go from here to Disneyland, are you going to take the long way? No. When you set on a trip, you're taking the what? The shortest route with potentially as few bathroom breaks as possible. You just want to get there. Okay? But in this case, it says that they go back to their country through a what? A different route. More than likely, this was a longer way around. So if the original trip took weeks, probably even months. This trip back probably took much longer. So, from the Magi first seeing the star to them making it back to their home country probably took the better part of an entire 
year, which gave the family of Christ plenty of time to escape to where? To Egypt, to avoid the wrath of King Herod. But remember what Herod said. He wanted the Magi to report back after they found the Christ child. Did the Magi do this? No. Yeah, very good, whoever said that. They did not report back to Herod. They kind of just kept it shut, okay? Because they deceived the king. They went around and didn't tell the king that they had, that they had gone or, or even found the Christ child. After months went by, Herod realized that he was played by the Magi and decided to kill all the baby boys of what age? Two years and under. What does the Scripture say? Two years and under, according to what? What does the Scripture say in Matthew? According to the time that they had ascertained from what, ascertained from what people? The Magi. So this is a long process that's gone on. This isn't like just within days or weeks. This is something that the first family of Jesus here is dealing with over the course of weeks and of months and of years. Herod didn't just go after Jesus. Notice this. He didn't just go after the person of Christ. His primary target was Jesus, of course. But who else did he go after? He went after anybody who matched the profile of Jesus. Boy, Jewish descent, in this town of this age. A question to ask for application this morning is, are we willing to be counted as one of Christ? merely by fitting the profile, by how we act, how we live, the things we do, the things we don't do, the things we choose to spend our money on, the things we value, the things we work toward. Are we willing to be counted among these people just by how we look, simply by fitting the profile? Could it be that we might face consequences as believers in the future just because we fit Jesus' profile just because we are living like a believer. And would somebody actually think of you as a believer if they watched your life? Would you fit the profile of Jesus just by how you act? But more practically this morning, there might come a time when we have to make some very difficult decisions that could impact our lives and our families' lives as to how we live as believers in public and the hills that we choose to die on regarding what we truly believe. Believers in Christ are called to be faithful even when things seem to be working against us in the public square, when things seem to be working against us in our culture, or when we see the shifting sands in the media or in the culture all around us, we are still called to be faithful. The family of Christ had no clue of Herod's plot until the 11th hour. The families of Bethlehem had no clue of Herod's scheme until it was too late. Are we willing as believers in Jesus to face down not just the extreme situations that they faced in Matthew 2, but the steady deluge of a culture that would seek to wear us down like water on rocks until we have no edge anymore, until we have no voice in the culture? Are we willing to endure this as believers? Are we willing to be faithful to this? 
Which brings me to my second point this morning that we're going to draw from Scripture is that believers are faithful under threat. Let's look at verses 13 through 15. It says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I what? Until I tell you. Does he land the plane? Does he land the plane with time? Does he say, Go there for six months? Does he go to say, Go there for about a year or two, and then I'm going to tell you? He just says, Go until I what? There's not a lot of defined time here, which implies that you need to trust me in my leading, where I'm telling you to go. If, if it were me, I would say, God, you know the hostility of the culture around me. You know the rage of this king. I have your son. Define it a little better. But God just says, Go there until I tell you, and I will be faithful to lead you even in your fear. Even in those moments when you feel like things are circling the camp, I will lead you in my good time, and I will tell you when you need to know it, for my glory and for your good. It says, remain there until I tell you why, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Consider for a moment. You have a child whose age is probably still measured in months. And that threat on the child's life is so heavy that you think fleeing to a land that was known for the enslavement of your people is a good option. <laughs> That's where Mary and Joseph are in this passage this morning. How long did the angel of the Lord in Joseph's dream say they would be exiled in Egypt? That's the point. We just went through this. They weren't told. But Mary and Joseph followed the instructions of God one step at a time. Not only was it good for God to do this, but it was good for Mary and Joseph to, to learn faithfulness as they raised the Son of God Himself. That God was still teaching them dependence. God was still teaching them faithfulness in the midst of real-time threat. And could He also be teaching us, this church, that we are also to remain faithful, to be listening to His voice under real-time censorship from some elements of the culture? Could it be in the future that we're going to have to also apply this same level of faithfulness in the pressure that we feel applied to us from our workplaces, from governments, from legal uh, institutions, from wherever it is? Are we going to have to also walk this same road one day in the future? They didn't get ahead of God. They didn't lag behind God. They walked with Him step by step for however long He had them. If I were Joseph, if this were me, I probably, probably would have argued. I would have said, really? Egypt? Don't we Israelites have a bad history with these people? <laughs> Why did you send us back? Why didn't you just send us back with the wise men, the magi? 
They're wealthy, obviously. They have good connections. They know how to travel in style. Thanks. Um, they could have offered us protection. Why Egypt? But little would I have known, little would I have known, that Egypt is only about 90 miles away and is outside the jurisdiction of Herod. If Herod did find the Christ child in Egypt, there would be nothing Herod could do about it. That God was protecting them, even in sending them into exile. Little would I have known that God has a bigger picture in mind too. That God wants to mirror the exodus in the book of Exodus of the Israelites by calling Jesus out from Egypt after Herod's death. The prophecy of Christ in Hosea about Christ says in Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I call my son. Now let's go to their time in Egypt. King Herod dies in the year 4 BC. This is an established historical fact. He dies in 4 BC. If your child is pushing one, one and a half years old, when you arrive in Egypt, how long were you in Egypt? Probably about two, two and a half years. It must have been difficult for Mary and Joseph. Here you are with the Son of God in exile in a foreign land for almost two years and not a word from the Lord the entire time. Do you think it was difficult for these two late teenage parents of God incarnate? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think they wondered what they were doing? Where was God? Where was His ultimate plan for their lives? Of course. But what do we read of them? We read of their faithfulness into Egypt and of their faithfulness coming out of Egypt. Just as the book of Exodus, when the Israelites come out of Egyptian slavery of Ramses II, the Son of Man also comes out of Egypt after the death of King Herod to rescue his people from slavery to sin. And if Jesus is faithful to his people in the face of those tyrants, there is absolutely no reason for us to doubt that he won't do the same for us today. Believers are faithful, even under threat, even when things are flipped upside down, even when your circumstances wouldn't seem anywhere near the plan that you would have for yourself. We are faithful when we hear the voice of God and we are faithful when he chooses to remain silent. Our feelings and our circumstances do not dictate our faithfulness, but rather Jesus' faithfulness to us dictates how we live. And that brings me to my next, moving into that idea that believers are faithful in oppression, repression, and suppression. Okay, Let's look at verse 16 through 18. It says this, Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became what? Furious. And he called and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. See that span of time there. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
And as, I, and as I mentioned, believers are faithful in oppression, repression, and suppression. And even though those words sound familiar, it's important for us to know the difference. Let's, let's do some, just a little bit of a word study, just a brief one, okay? I don't want to bore you completely to tears, but let's look at what the difference is between these things. Oppression, you might see this on the screen or in your notes, is the harsh treatment or unfair treatment of any individual or group of people. An example of this could be for us, Believers are not allowed to have certain jobs or positions simply because of their faith commitment. Simply because you are a believer, you can't have this job or work this thing or have this certain possession. That is oppression. Repression is the restraining or limiting the actions of an individual or group of people. For example, believers are not allowed to publicly acknowledge their faith commitments by their schools, workplaces, or governments under the what? The threat of potential consequences. They don't actually do it. They'll just say, if you do this, there may be further consequence. Just to, just to keep you in line. I'm not, I'm not really saying this is going to happen, but it could happen if you acknowledge Jesus publicly, if you pray at work, or if you keep a Bible on premises, or, 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 okay? It's not the examples I can list, it the, it's the examples that I can't list that concern me right now. But that's under potential consequence. Suppression is putting it into something by force. It's repression put into action. Example, if one is caught public or perhaps privately even, acknowledging their faith commitments, i.e. reading scripture, praying, worshiping, evangelizing, just talking to somebody about Jesus, having a faith conversation in your workplaces or, or wherever you find yourself in public, they, or, or, or even on social media, by the way. If you just post about it, we have, you're just not right for the culture of this organization. Therefore, you are liable to social legal, occupational, or physical punishment. The, the family of Jesus and the entire town of Bethlehem were victims of all three at the same time due to Herod's actions. It can be easy to give in to temptation, to question your faith or your church when faith's faced with any one of these actions by our culture. The pressure can be extremely hard and it can come extremely fast. We are not so much in a position like this in the moment, like our brothers and sisters are in closed countries that are close to the gospel, but there is nothing to say, friends. There is nothing to say that we in the United States are exempt from any of this. This is why we always have to keep watch. We're not exempt from it happening in our lifetimes, and definitely not our kids' or our grandkids' lifetimes. This is the reason discipleship of our, our young and of our teenagers is so vital to what we do as churches and what we do as families within the four walls of our church. The ministry of the church reinforces what we do with our families, and what we do as families is a reflection of who we are as the church. Any three or a combination of these three grim actions can, have, can happen at any point and can happen quickly, which is why we need to keep a close watch 
over what is happening in our culture, in our world, in our national, state, and city levels. It's also why we need to watch what happens in our churches also on a global, national, state, association, and local church levels. Now, um, Albert Moeller, who is the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which Lori and I are both uh, graduates from, he had a great illustration about this uh, this Thursday on his, his podcast, The Briefing, which I think you all should subscribe to, by the way, um, and listen to. It's, a, it's about 20 minutes every day. It'll do you a world of good. But he said, he said on this topic uh, Thursday, he said this, we need to understand that something is going on in our culture that might be illustrated with a tube of toothpaste. Let's say you start a brand new tube of toothpaste. You open it up, you take the cap off, you push at the bottom, because that's the decent way to start using a tube of toothpaste, and the toothpaste comes out. But the greater the pressure, the faster the toothpaste comes out. Do you see why I didn't do this as an object lesson this morning? I didn't want to get it all over the rugs. Anyway, the greater the pressure, the faster the toothpaste comes out. Let's just say that by accident, you drop the tube of toothpaste, clunk on the floor. You don't, you, you scramble to grab it, and instead, you step on it. Right? Oh my goodness. Guess what? A lot of toothpaste comes out. The velocity is radically increased by the deployment of that pressure on that toothpaste bottle. Now, that's frustrating if you're looking at toothpaste on the floor, but that's what's happening in our culture. What you see is that a massive force is being applied to American society, and the toothpaste is coming out of the tube fast. But intelligent Christians need to think carefully about what kind of forces are now exerting this kind of pressure and why the velocity is now being increased, why the entire process is being sped up. It is because secularization, the process of, of transforming a culture to not believing in, 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 in Christ at all or having any type of Christian commitment, works just that way that you have other contagions in society. It begins small, it begins slowly, but it grows fast. And as you're looking at the secularization in the United States, we need to recognize that even something like COVID-19 can evidently have this type of effect, unquote. Think about that. Who are we, and, and, and are we willing to be faithful in oppression, repression, and suppression. The last thing I want to say, the last thing I want to say is believers can trust. God will place us where they are needed to be in order to bring him the most glory. Final scripture we're going to look at this morning says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Notice Mary and Joseph's faithfulness not just in the days leading up to Jesus' birth, but in the four years 
post. That's where the faithfulness was. Sure, it was there before, but I'm telling you, the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph is really shown in that post-Christmas silent night postcard thing that we like to say, silent night, how beautiful that was. After that's when the real pressure came. And so I have to wonder for us, after Christmas, is this when the pressure comes at us? Are we willing to be faithful after all the sentimentality, after all the songs, after all the candles and all the beauty, are we still willing to be faithful day in and day out to Christ? Mary was faithful to believe the angel who said she would give birth to the Messiah. Joseph was faithful not to divorce Mary. They were faithful the night there was nowhere to stay and gave birth to the Son of God in a manger. They were faithful under threat during their flight to Egypt, even after the death of the children in Bethlehem, in oppression, repression, and suppression. They were faithful when God spoke and when he was silent and when he was calling them back after the death of Herod. And we should do likewise. If Jesus' earthly parents faced these type of conditions in this way, surely we can too. Being on Jesus' side didn't exempt Mary, Joseph, or Bethlehem from the rage of the king or from the fear of following God in obedience. But they followed, not because they were afraid, but because of the peace in spite of fear, the peace that passes all understanding. That's how they went there. And that's how they faced it. What we see at the end of the Christmas story, the whole Christmas story in Matthew is is not a pretty bow, Christmas card type of ending, but it's a blueprint, friends, for how followers of Jesus in 2021 and beyond should follow him in faithfulness. Are we going to be this as a church? Are we going to be this as a people? and as individuals moving into 2020 and forward. And may Christ always find us faithful to him. As Sam comes to lead us this morning in a a song of response, consider your faithfulness.